Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The day hasn't started off too well in the Independent Republic, I'm afraid. I woke to the news that there was no running water uh, in the entire postcode that I live in. So there was no shower, no tap water to clean my teeth. And so already I've been to the hairdressers for a wash and blow dry. For those of you who are watching live on the YouTube stream, you will notice that I look slightly more quaffed than I normally do. The good news is that the water is slowly being turned back on after some kind of water main disaster somewhere in South London. But the bad news is Thames Water is going to make a late entry onto the planks of the week list, which we're filming later on today. I'll tell you why. Because far from giving out information on their website this morning when I checked, they instead were happy to inform me of their policy on the gender pay gap and their statement on modern-day slavery. Marvellous, isn't it? I'm not interested in modern-day slavery. I'm not interested in the gender pay gap. I just want to know when I can get the water back. Thanks very much indeed. You're a water company. Meanwhile, back in the real world, we are taking the uh, NHS to task because of a massive bill, £4.3 billion in legal fees, apparently, that they're going to be paying out, all thanks to more than 10,000 claims a year of clinical negligence. Yet more evidence that the massively overfunded and massively inefficient organisation doesn't do what it's supposed to do very well. This morning, we want your stories. 0344... 499-1000. Later on, we'll have former Brexit Party MEP Lance Foreman in the studio to talk about why he joined the Tory party and we'll be finding out just how much the economy will boom once we leave the European Union at the end of the month. 0344-499-1000. Plus, we'll be asking this question, does Meghan Markle actually know anything about how to carry a baby after she posed for some rather staged pictures in Canada while out walking with her two dogs and her two bodyguards? Staying out of the limelight just seems to be so hard for her to do doesn't it? Don't forget, we're live streaming the show once more on YouTube and on Facebook, and we'll be doing it all week. You're listening to me and watching me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there are many things to talk about this morning in the papers. Lots and lots of things going on. Uh, Queen's aide warns Harry and Meghan over royal title because it looks as though uh, the actual title that they've given to Meghan Markle, uh, Meghan Markle, Duchess of Sussex, is supposedly something they would normally give to somebody getting uh, actually divorced. The British economy will grow faster than Eurozone rivals, says the IMF. Um, Perilous times ahead for the BBC, says The Guardian, as director J. 
General says he will quit. And that certainly is going to be a story that we'll be talking about over the course of the next few days. But first up this morning, we want to talk to John McQuater, spokesman uh, for the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers, because quite frankly... The idea that somehow all of this money is being wasted by the uh, NHS on legal fees is absolutely ridiculous and prodigious. Now, we all know that in the end, it's taxpayers' money that comes out of this particular pot. However, to make as many clinical errors and to be accused of clinical negligence more than 10,000 times a year, it would seem, to the point where you've got a bill of £4.3 billion going to lawyers seems to me to be absolutely and utterly ludicrous. Let's talk to John McQuaid now and find out what he makes of it all. John, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Now, a lot of people criticise me because I'm quite open about being critical of the NHS. I'm not one of those people who thinks it's some kind of religious organisation that can't be in any way besmirched in some way, shape or form. It does some wonderful things. It has some great people working for it, but it's very large and very unwieldy as an organisation, in my view. And I think this proves it. Well, I think the NHS, and most people will say this, does a fantastic job. And in actual fact, the number of, of claims is small, but it's there, and we're talking about avoidable errors. Just a little bit of context. Mm. This is just the kind of duty all of us uh, have every day in our, in our lives. If we're going to get in a car, we take reasonable care. If you're an employer, you take reasonable care. If you provide professional services, you take reasonable care. Yeah. Like, uh, addition to that, which is in professional services, you are judging by the standards of the profession. So we're talking here about um, incidents arising where people have an adverse outcome, often very serious, not because that's inevitable, but because it was needless. Mm. The standard fell below that which the professional people themselves are setting. So I think that's a very important context. And I think you're right that that needs to be faced up to and looked at. Yes, in the context of all the treatments that go so well, but when it goes wrong, it's about accountability and trying to put that right. And one of the things that I find in many areas of NHS sort of administration, if you like, is that accountability is in pretty short supply because you've got many tiers of management, you've got many, many people who work in an organisation who don't really have to answer to anybody in particular. And it seems to me that things fall through the slats quite regularly. I think where I pick that up and something that um, practitioners doing uh, my sort of job will, will talk about is the failure to learn lesson. Yeah. So um, something goes wrong, and what the first thing usually that your client will say to you is, I do not want this to happen to anybody else. Mm. And one of the concerns that we have is that those lessons are not learned. Maybe that's due to the administrative systems, whatever it is, but that is a key feature and a way of avoiding claims, avoiding needless injury would actually be to learn lessons so that the standards the NHS themselves are setting are met. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about when the standards they set um, are not achieved for individual patients. Right. And are you aware or is there, are there figures on this as to what types of um, operations or what types of behaviours in the NHS tend to lead to more claims or if there is a sort of specific area where there are more claims made? There, there, there do appear to be some... Um, it's, it's, it can be hard to judge because, for example, the highest uh, amount of damages will relate to... Uh, birth injury cases yeah. because they have such a significant effect. Right. Those are a lower number of cases. Um, there, there is information available. If people are interested, you can look at the um, 
an HSR annual report, which is on the website, and that does give a more of a breakdown of the kind of clinical incidents that uh, generate claims. Okay. But it's a whole range of things. It is a whole range of things. Yeah. And would you say, and I mean, I appreciate that you are from uh, a law, lawyer's organisation, I mean, is this a case of ambulance chasing lawyers being overzealous as well because they know that they can get a payout? And I don't know if it's a no-win, no-fee type scenario. Absolutely not at all. We're, we're here to respond to a need. People generally do not want to pursue claims of this kind. But they have to do that if, for example, they are injured needlessly and they cannot work and they lose income. Yeah. They have to do something. And um, we simply get, uh, we, we do the work that is required and the less work we have to do, the less the cost. One of the problems is claims are not responded to in a sufficiently proactive way that mm. narrows the issues and gets them sorted quick. And if they get sorted quick, the costs are reduced. Yes, that was going to be my next question, actually. You know, how much of this uh, is also down to a kind of inefficiency of communication, which, again, a lot of people say the NHS is not particularly good at in all sorts of areas? There are cases where clearly there may be um, an argument about whether there was any fault because um, clinicians may say we don't think that we did make an mm. error. And, of course, they've got the right to defend their professional reputations. But we would say too often claims that should have been admitted early on where there has clearly been an error, it needs to be put right, they are delayed, they are defended, they are put off, and that adds to the cost as well as um, delaying matters for the injured person. Right. I know this might be a difficult thing for you to do, but imagine if you would what people are listening to right now and they're wondering, well, what sorts of things do go wrong? You've mentioned birthing injuries, but what sorts of other things would you say are quite often the case where litigation is concerned? It, it is, as I've already said, it's a whole range of things. That's one example. But usually um, claims will fall into one or more of the following categories. There may be a, a failure to diagnose the a patient who goes to see their, their own doctor who actually doesn't pick up the fact there's a problem. Mm. There is delay, prompt treatment can't be given. There can be errors in diagnosis, the wrong diagnosis is made that can result in the wrong treatment, yeah. for example. Or, or actually all of those things can be sorted. The uh, problem is picked up, the treatment's given, but actually it, doesn't, it isn't done carefully enough. Mm. Surgery that goes wrong and somebody is injured. We're not talking about the inevitable risks of treatment here. We're talking about injuries that happen because people do not take yes. proper care. Right, indeed. Because I'm looking at a figure here which is quite extraordinary. Estimates published last year put the total cost of outstanding compensation claims at 83 billion. Well, this figure's being banded that's, that's, about. That's nearly sort of, what, three quarters of, of the entire NHS budget. Well, that isn't really quite comparable because the, uh, the, the figure refers to claims over a number of years, if not decades, while the budget is for a single year. Yeah, but even so, it's an awful lot of money. It's a lot of money, but it has, um, very often, these uh, types of claim can have the most significant consequences. And, and let me say, when you're looking at it, it, how compensation is assessed, that is assessed by judges. It's assessed by the courts, and it is carefully calibrated with the aim of trying to put people in the position that they would have been if this wrongdoing hadn't occurred. So, for example, loss of earnings 
if you lose a, a earnings over a year, say, the court will compensate you for that loss. Mm. No more, no less. Yes. So it does reflect the individual losses caused to those particular patients. Yes, but at the moment, as far as we understand it, John, there is no kind of ceiling on the kind of compensation payments that can be made. And now various different health leaders um, have said we should try and look at some form or some way of limiting the amount of money paid out. That's a broader question. The general law says that if you injure somebody or you cause them some other loss, then you're liable for that. Yeah. And there isn't a limit. And the question then becomes whether you, take, you make an exception here and should the, this particular organisation be treated in a different way. And then that raises questions whether, for example, if people providing private medical treatment yeah. should have exemptions. No, I agree with you. I actually, I actually agree with you. I don't think they should be treated differently. I think I'd rather see uh, the NHS, you know, sort of sharpening up their act, as it were, and not committing quite as many negligent cases in order for the claims to decrease in number. You and I are responsible. If we get in our car and we drive and we're negligent, we are responsible. Mm. We don't ask for a limit on that. And it's the same in most areas of life. So it does raise a question about... Should this be treated any different? And is there an insurance um, sort of aspect to this? Because I know from uh, my time in America that there were places in the States where obstetricians would stop operating on, uh, on pregnant mothers and they would stop delivering babies because the health insurance that they needed to get or the, or the malpractice insurance they needed to pay, the premiums were so high, in some cases a million dollars a year, that it just wasn't worth their while delivering babies anymore. Um, if it's private treatment, there will be indemnity insurance for clinicians. If it's NHS treatment, those claims will be dealt with by the government through mm. the NHS. Um, I think the, perhaps the significance of, uh, and this, this applies to many um, aspects of life, of insurance cover, is that it can moderate risky behaviour. Mm. Insurers will control that. But that is something I would have thought to be encouraged because you want people to learn the lessons learn from previous mistakes and in the future not have avoidable errors. No, sure. But, I mean, in America it's used in the context of conversations about the rising cost of health care, you know, so that the lawyers basically blame the insurance companies, the insurance companies blame the doctors, the doctors blame the lawyers. It's a sort of vicious circle. And meanwhile, the patients end up having to pay a lot more money for everything that they need to do. The, the real key to this, um, seems to me, is setting and then meeting relevant standards, learning the lessons and avoiding the negligence. Because just to repeat myself, we're talking about not liability just because something hasn't worked out as it might have been hoped, but because there's actually been negligence, mm. carelessness, falling below the standards the medical professionals are setting themselves. They set the bar and it's aiming to meet that. And how satisfied are you or, or are your uh, clients by the way the NHS then deals with the compensation payment? If the payment has to be made, do they then remonstrate with or otherwise punish the individual concerned? I mean, is there enough responsibility being taken, you know, at the NHS sort of point of sale, as it, as it were? I think there can be problems in individual cases where claims are not dealt with in a, in a timely way, admissions not made in a timely way, but I think it's, it's fair to say that when you get over that hurdle, um, progress can be made 
and quite often the parties uh, at the conclusion of a claim there can be an acknowledgement things have gone wrong that can often be really important to people as much as anything else and you can move forward mm. and 70 percent i'm told of the claims are mostly settled outside of court which is presumably a good thing because it means that there's at least a limitation on the costs involved and how is that possible um when it's had to get to that point? Because if you're settling out of court, surely it would make more sense for the NHS to, to settle the claims a lot earlier. There's a, there's a protocol for dealing with cases from, from day one, yeah. and that applies to, to both sides. They're encouraged to use that, and that has the advantage, if the parties engage, that many cases can be sorted either before you've even commenced court proceedings or if you have commenced court proceedings before you end up at a final hearing. And a resolution is always better, and as you say, sooner rather than later, because that is better for the patient and it is better in terms of the cost that can be saved. Yeah, absolutely right. John, thanks very much indeed. John McQuater there uh, speaking to us from the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers. Now, uh, so many of you have NHS stories to tell. I'd love to hear some of them today, please, because we want to know from you whether you have ever brought a claim, whether you've thought about bringing a claim, uh, whether you've worked in the NHS and you know about claims that have been brought, either fairly or unfairly. Tell us from the other side of the, uh, the coin, if you like, what the lawyers are like, because we all know that lawyers can be pretty unpleasant people at times. Many of them can be reasonable but sometimes getting a lawyer involved ends up costing you more money. Uh, and if you did win a claim against the NHS, how much of that claim and the money that you made was actually taken by the lawyer? Because you see these adverts all the time on TV, don't you? Um, you know, if you want to make a claim, call injury lawyers for you or similar companies like that, uh, as, as I would call them, ambulance-chasing law firms. They are making an absolute fortune out of this. I'm kidding you not. Three quarters of the NHS budget, practically, 80-odd billion pounds is outstanding for people making claims for clinical negligence. Now, don't sit there and tell me the NHS is a great organisation that doesn't make mistakes and that somehow uh, is the jewel in the crown of the Labour Party, which is what we were told, of course, before uh, the uh, election. Imagine Jeremy Corbyn turning up everywhere he went to tell us that Trump was going to buy the NHS, that Donald Trump was going to be sold the NHS by the Tory party. One, it's not true. Two... Who in their right mind would want to buy the NHS? It is absolutely uh, on its back legs. It's basically falling over every single day of the week. 0344 499 1000. Now we find out that it's not actually very good either. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I've got some great messages coming in. We want to hear more stories from you as well, though, on the phones, because don't forget, this is the place to get your stories heard. This is the place to get your voices heard. This is the place to hear common sense, but also to give other people information and stuff that you know about, because some fantastic stories already coming in uh, on various forms of communication. Because don't forget, we are now live on YouTube. We're live on Facebook. You can comment on both of those threads, on both of those feeds, and I can tell you there are some interesting interesting people coming up with stuff there. Uh, Neo says this, there's too many chiefs in the NHS and suppliers hiking their prices because taxpayers will pay it. Uh, ESP says the best thing is to look after yourself and not end up in hospital in the first place. Well, that's a little bit sort of uh, supercilious, I would say, because some people end up in hospital, of course, for absolutely no fault of their own. David on the YouTube feed uh, is looking at me and quite unbelievably, he says, Mike, you look a bit windswept today. What's upset you? You don't look happy. Well, 
To be honest, I've never looked more quaffed. I've got the sort of Gordon Gecko hairstyle going on, right? Because I had it all swept back. They put some product in it for me. Uh, they massaged my face because I woke up this morning, thanks very much indeed to Thames Water, with absolutely no water in the house at all. And in fact, not only was I without water, but everyone in the entire postcode in which I lived was without water. And it turned out that there had been some kind of massive um, water main break, basically, uh, somewhere near Southwark Station, a place called Blackfriars Road. Now, if you don't live in London, you won't know where that is, but it's quite a big part of South London. Um, however, uh, basically, when I went on the Thames Water uh, site to try and find out precisely what was going on, all I could find was their policy on the gender pay gap and their policy on modern-day slavery. Now, I'm not quite sure what the Thames Water organisation's got to do with modern-day slavery. I'm pretty sure that what they should be doing uh, is making sure that the water is put back on so that everybody who lives in the postcode which was affected can actually go and get themselves showered uh, for in time to go to work tomorrow or in time to go to work later on. So I may have to enter Thames Water as a late entry into Plank of the Week, uh, which we're going to be filming later on today with Stuart Jackson and Nadia Essex. That'll be out tonight. Don't forget, of course, yesterday uh, we did another uh, superb show on uh, a, a thing called Off Air, which was with Alex Phillips, the uh, MEP from the Brexit Party. She tells us some very interesting things about what goes on in Brussels uh, as somebody who's now been working there from the inside. She also told us some very interesting stuff about how the EU operates in places like Africa. And we're going to be talking about that later on because Boris Johnson, of course, was out uh, at a conference yesterday talking about doing trade deals with Africa and various different African nations. Prince uh, Harry uh, was also there shortly before he flew off to Canada uh, for the rest of his life. I don't suppose we'll be seeing him again. Coming up, we'll be talking about Meghan Markle and that famous picture that you're seeing all over the newspapers today of her walking around carrying a baby looking like she doesn't actually know how to carry the baby. And it's obvious to anybody who looks at that picture that it is a posed picture. She's got two dogs, she's got baby Archie in a sort of a sling, and she's wearing some very nice clothing and smiling at the camera. Now, that is a set-up picture. This is a woman who supposedly has left this country because of the imposition of the press. Absolutely amazing. Alf says this on Twitter, uh, my daughter had a newborn baby in special care. She was given an antibiotic to be given strictly every 36 hours. It was given after 12. She already had breathing difficulties um, and uh, it says something called gentamicin has a strict protocol because giving it early or too often can be fatal. It was one of many issues. Johnny says a few years ago my dad had three ribs broken by paramedics while they were doing chest compressions after a heart attack. I was advised by a lawyer to claim for the broken ribs. I didn't, but some people People would have. Something needs to be done about the ambulance chasing lawyers. Uh, Andrew says, as a construction site manager, I have to take responsibility for accidents or negligence on my part, and I could be jailed for it. Surely there should be more personal responsibility for the healthcare profession. And I think that's the point. If you've had uh, an experience that you want to tell us about with the NHS, whether it's good or bad, uh, we want to hear it. Whether you've had to hire lawyers or whether the lawyers were over-avaricious, whether the lawyers took loads of money from your settlement claim, I, I'm not quite comfortable with the idea of all these ambulance-chasing lawyers suing the NHS for 84 billion quid. But I'm even less comfortable for the NHS actually allowing them to do so because they've been so negligent. That's the problem. Selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, it's time to say a very good afternoon to Lance Foreman, a man that we've spoken to many times, we but uh, we've never actually met Lance. Welcome to the Independent Republic. Delighted to be here. And thank you for coming, and thank you for bringing such a lovely array of, of goodies, because I've got in front of me a Boris bagel, which I can hold up here, uh, which is uh, uh, the Foreman's famous London Cure smoked salmon, cream cheese and chopped chives. Very nice indeed. Uh, and this comes from uh, Boris's time, I believe, uh, when you when you got to know Boris as he was mayor of London, yeah. So I I got to know Boris uh, in uh, it's around uh, I don't know two thousand and nine two thousand and ten. We uh, we were in a very unusual situation where our smoked salmon factory and business had to be relocated because it was it was literally on the running track of where they wanted to build the Olympic Stadium. Oh, is that right? Right. And uh, we had this huge battle with uh, Ken Livingstone and the GLA, or the LDA, which was part mm. of the GLA. And, of course, um, having a, a common enemy in Ken Livingstone, uh, Boris uh, and I got to know each other, and uh, he very kindly agreed to open our facility. And, uh, you know, he, he was around uh, fairly frequently, actually. And, uh, and so we decided to... Uh, to launch a product right. in his uh, in his name, the Boris Bagel, and uh, well, it's still going, so it must it be still must be reasonable success. It is, yeah. Well, it's fantastic smoked salmon, of course. Well, of course. Now, of course, people who don't know Ken Livingston other than the way he is now, yeah, um, which is a rather kind of curious and eccentric old character from the left. I mean, he was a very powerful man and quite a sort of um, he sort of ruled with a bit of an iron fist when he was in charge of London, didn't he? Uh, he did. Um, but you know he did. To be honest, you know he got things done. Yeah, I mean he really did get things done. Um, you know, and if you, if you step way back to the GLC GLC days, he he did so too there. And of course, Margaret Thatcher decided that mm. uh, she didn't want him to get things done anymore, and so she uh, she uh, she closed down the the GLC. And uh, who knows what will happen with? Well, isn't it funny how... <laughs> the London um, Mirrality right now. Well, I'll tell you what, I, the thing that really annoys me when I walk past, and this is t- apologies if this sounds a bit London-centric to people listening outside of London, but whenever you walk past City Hall now, which is this big round ball-like building over by Tower Bridge, deliberately, apparently, they don't clean it because Sadiq Khan thinks it's not worth spending that kind of money, <sighs> even though he thinks it's quite a good idea to spend loads of money on PRs yeah. uh, and more sort of travel uh, budgets for himself. But it looks terrible. It needs a clean. It, it does. Now, I, I've seen sort of images and, and sometimes go past it. And, and yeah. you're right. It's sort of, uh, 
It looks like one of those sort of dirty vans on the street where it somebody does. sort of grabbed yeah. their finger and sort of written and a I mean, message I on it. I don't know how much it costs to clean a building like that, but surely to heavens, no, you know, the, to, the, yeah. the flagship building for the London Mayor's office should be sparkling. Uh, absolutely. We should, you know, we should be taking pride. You know, if he's talking about air pollution, mm. you know, the, the one thing you want to do is make sure that, uh, you know, if you believe in cleaning up on pollution, you should you absolutely know, keep your own uh, home tidy. Well, I mean, I think we can agree, I'm sure you and I, that Sadiq Khan is, is certainly not doing the job that he should be doing. Well, there are two issues for London, really. Uh, one of them is crime, and he's definitely not uh, succeeding on that front. And the other is is housing. I mean, housing is such a huge issue, certainly for the next generation. And um, it, it is it is so crucial that we do sort it out. Um, you know, I often hear politicians talking about, um, you know, we want to make this a high-wage economy. And actually, every time they say that, I sort of grit my teeth because, you know, making ourselves a high-wage economy um, doesn't make us competitive internationally. Mm. What we need to do is lower the cost of living. Yes. And the biggest cost that people face now is their housing costs, sure. you know. So we just need to build more. And, you know, uh, my own experience, uh, you know, having to build factories, my own experience, um, just dealing with, you know, all the bureaucracy in the, uh, again, what came out after the, the Olympics, the London Legacy Development Corporation. It's just a nightmare to get mm. anything done in, de in development. It's just, it is so over-regulated and the planners have got far too much power. And I think what we really need is an emergency planning act. And why I say that is because if you look back at the Olympics, the one really great thing about the Olympics is that it had a fixed deadline. Yeah. You know, you had to have the 2012 Games right. in 2012. You couldn't, you know, things run on, you couldn't have it in 2013. Right. And so they passed, the, the Parliament passed the Olympic Act and the Olympic Act allowed Parliament basically to do anything they wanted to do. You could cut across any piece of legislation mm. to make sure that the thing was ready in time. Now, in my view... Building an, another million homes must be more important to the nation than 17 days of sport. Yes. So why don't we have an, you know, an emergency planning act that allows you to cut across any regulation in planning so that we get these homes built? So you know, I guess because we are very sort of traditionally not much good at, um, at, at big projects because, I mean, as you say, I mean, even if you were to give people a, a sort of a fake deadline to say, right, it has to be done by this time, unless there's an actual deadline because of the Olympics there had to be, you know, look at HS2, look at Crossrail, look at the Scottish Parliament. Anything that we seem to take on always seems to go over budget well, and it always seems yeah. to be late. Maybe the incentive structures are wrong. You know, the civil servants get paid come what may. Yeah. And, may, you know, in the private sector, if you don't get the thing done by a certain time, there are penalties. And uh, maybe we need to change the in incentive structures mm. within the civil service so that people are incentivised in a positive way if right. things do get done by a deadline and maybe, maybe in a negative way if they don't. Well, we're hearing that Dominic Cummings wants to kind of reform the civil service how he does that is not clear and whether he's able to do it is not clear but certainly it's good it's a good idea it's absolutely a good idea you know there there is a, it's a real problem well in our politics not just in the civil service but even you know even in parliament that you know, there is so little experience of the wider world. You know, people just go, you know, they, the career politicians now, they just go straight into it, out of college. They go to you know, perhaps work for a lobbying yeah. company and then they get offered a, a seat that they're never going to win and then the next time round, because they've, they get rewarded for having sort of, you know, knocked on doors and mm. so on, they get given a safe seat. But they don't really bring any wider experience uh, from, you know, from outside in, you know, into the game. And it's the same with the civil service. It's, you know, straight out of these graduate schemes in 
into the civil service. And, you know, I, I, you know, I really do worry about it. So I think Dominic Cummings is absolutely right. We need to shake this whole thing up. Mm. And knowing Boris from as long ago as you do, um, people say to me that know him quite well that he has become a more serious figure, that when he was Mayor of London, he was a very good Mayor of London. He got an awful lot of things done and he had a great team around him and all of that. But he was still able to kind of play up to the cameras a little bit. He's now a bit more serious, isn't he? And I wonder if you've noticed that or whether you disagree with me. You know what? I, I think he was pretty serious back then too. Yeah. Um, you know, he he has this sort of effervescent sort of character and comes up with these amazing, you know, wonderful phrases. Yeah. And, and that's great because that's that's his charisma. That's why people like him. And it him works, and, obviously. And warm to him and it works. But I think he was always a serious politician. And I also think he was a very considered politician. You know, a number of occasions when I met him, he would always say to me, you know... Oh, I've got this issue and I, you know, I can see the positives and the negatives. I'm sort of weighing this thing up. What do you think? And he was always very considered in that way. And I think that, you know, when people say, you know, he, he wrote these two letters, should we stay in the EU or should we leave? I think that was just his mind sort mm. of ticking over. It wasn't because he was trying to work out what was best for him personally. Right. He was seriously considering the pros and the cons. And, and, you know, with Brexit, it wasn't clean cuts. You know, everybody could, you know... Even my own friends that are Remainers, you know, many of them said, you know, my head's going this way, my heart's going that way. I don't think it was nearly as binary as no. uh, as it's made out. And, of course, he is one of those very Marmite figures, isn't he? He does uh, have people with very strong views all around him. I and mean, very few people say, oh, I don't really have an opinion about Boris Johnson. People either really hate him uh, and keep calling him a liar and a sort of serial misogynist and all of this nonsense. And, and, and other, way, other people who obviously voted for him are more than happy to put their faith in him. Well, the fact is, he, he's there now. You know, he, right. he, he's got the top job and he's got a you know a strong majority, which means that our government can actually get on and do things. And you know, he'll be judged by the results. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, in time, you know, the people that did support him will be proved right, and those doubters will will you know will will come to learn that actually, you know. We hope for all of us. He's, you know, he's a great mm. prime minister. And uh, well, I mean, we've got a great opportunity in the next five, certainly five years, possibly the next ten years, to change quite a lot of what goes on in Britain. Because I think there's a sense, as much as there's a sense of optimism, I was talking about in the last hour in terms of economically. You know, even the IMF are actually saying we're going to be in better shape than most of the <gasps> amazing, euros. Amazing. Which, you know, I mean, miracles <laughs> will never cease, right? But at the bottom it's line, it's actually worrying me. They're I saying know, that. <laughs> I know. What do they want? Yeah, exactly. But the bottom line, as well, is that the country has got problems in the sense that it's incredibly congested now in certain parts of the country, not just around London and South East, but, you know, you take a trip up the M1 or you go up the M6, you try and get from Leeds to, to Manchester. You know, there's infrastructural problems, as you said, there's a shortage of housing. You know, there's lots to be happy about, but there's an awful lot that needs kind of modernising, in my view. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the pace of change of technology, I, I think, will be mm. the, the, the great moderniser. I mean, I... I, I I think that one of the biggest solutions to the congestion is um, is electric cars. Yeah. Because, you know, I think that there will come a time, and I don't know how long it'll be, but maybe in 10 to 15 years' time, when we might not need to own cars anymore. You will just get on your phone and press a button, this little, you know, electric thing without a driver will just turn up, you know, at your door and, and take you to where you're going. Mm. And, and that's the thing. I think something like 80 to 90% of a car's life sits parked. Yeah. And when cars are parked on streets um, and they're not going anywhere, they're actually narrowing the, 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 the travel space yeah. for, the, for the moving cars. And if people didn't need to own cars because, you know, the, the, this driverless thing would just pop up where they wanted it and then it would immediately go on to the next journey, you probably only need 20 to 30% of the actual vehicles, mm. you know, on the road, which would remove congestion. It would be much cleaner transport, um, much more efficient. Um, you could 
do what you wanted to do on the journey. You didn't have to sort of worry about using your phone and driving yeah. and all the sort of stuff that you shouldn't be doing. So I, I, th- I think technology is going to change so much and the pace of it is just so fast nowadays. And, and that's, again, where... You know, governments cannot keep up. Mm. They cannot keep up. The EU cannot keep up with the, the sort of pace of change of, of technology and it's, you know, not fit for purpose. And possibly the, the pace of change from the EU's point of view of, of political kind of thought because there's been a kind of... Um, I don't want to call it a sort of a, a quake across Europe, but certainly I was looking at some figures the other day of all the left and centre-left parties in every European country are getting their lowest vote of all time. Uh, and obviously there's a big shift to the right in many countries. Um, what about your own political journey? You were part of the Tory party a long time ago, back in the 90s. Yeah. You then um, went into the Brexit party as an, as an MEP. You're now back in the Tory party. So yeah. how did that all work? How did that all happen? Well, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I was... Uh, it was in 1991, I was Peter Lilly's uh, special advisor. Um, it, the, he was Secretary of State for Trade and Industry at the time, and I was working with him for a couple of years. Uh, but then he switched to the DSS, Department of Social Security, and I didn't have any great interest in that. Mm. And it was at that point that I decided to join my family business. And we are, say, we're, we we have a 100-year, 115-year-old salmon smoking business. And so I've been doing that. For and is last... that all based in Scotland? Is that where no, the no, it's, is? it's based in East London, actually. Oh, OK. It's, so uh, so this is where you are. You, everything's I'm based, done down here. Yeah, right next to the Olympic Stadium. Okay. So um, we've been based in East London for over 100 years. Um, and... Um, it was. I sort of got drawn back into politics. Well, I got drawn back into local politics during the you know that period around the Olympics right. um, because of this huge battle, and there were about three hundred and fifty businesses that were being booted out of what became the Olympic Park to make way for it, and I became the voice of those businesses right. to make sure they were sort of fairly treated. But that was a very challenging time, and that's how I got to know Boris. And then, of course, um, not long after, a few years later, um, we had the referendum. And again, it was quite coincidental. I just, uh, I just happened to be in the same building as the Vote Leave offices uh, because I'd, I'd written a book about our Olympic challenges and my publisher um, would just happened to have his offices in the same building as right. uh, Vote Leave. So um, I, I popped down to see uh, the Vote Leave uh, people and they, they said, oh, we'd you know, love to have you involved, love to have uh, you know, a business person involved. And that was quite interesting, actually, because... There are so few business people you can name that actually got involved in the campaign. And I can understand why. It was, it was quite a dangerous thing to do mm. in many respects. Um, because, you know, if you're vocal on one side or the other, certainly in a, in a, in a decision that's sort of quite split, you're going to offend half your customers. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I, I must have had, you know, around the time of the referendum, at least, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 messages, emails from people sort of saying, we're never going to buy your smoked really? salmon ever again. So isn't that yeah. madness? It, it seems it is to madness. me there is a kind of collective madness that, that I'm not saying Brexit caused, but certainly uh, um, emerged as a result of Brexit. It is it, absolutely crazy. And I just sort of felt that, you know... I, I'm always quite open and frank, and I just sort of feel that you know people ought to respect my views. Yeah. They've got nothing to do with the quality right. of the, the, the produce. It stays the same, regardless exactly. of whether and, and you remain or think, leave. Exactly, and you'd like to think that they want to learn from my experience right. and uh, and so on. And uh, you know, and I think that's one of the, again one of the problems with uh, politicians. You know, when they say business wants this, business wants that, we've spoken to business. They normally speak to sort of multinationals, yes. these huge corporates, or the PR advisors for these major organisations, and. Actually, ninety nine point 
I think 8% of all businesses in the UK yeah. are SMEs. Right. And it's the little guys like us that, you know, we are the real drivers of the economy. And, and I just felt that it's really important that the public hear from small business people, you know, like myself. And, and so, you know, many times, you know, when I was asked to do an interview, I'd sort of phone a friend that I knew was on site and I'd say, yeah. well, do you want to do it this time? And they'd say, oh, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm a bit nervous that, right. uh, that we might offend some, some customers. So anyway, I became quite vocal in, in the, uh, the referendum campaign. Um, and of course, on the twenty third of June, uh, two thousand sixteen, I, you know, I was absolutely ecstatic. I thought the whole thing was done and dusted. Right. And little did I know, little, little did, did anybody all know. of us know that mm. uh, there was going to be a massive Remain fight back. Yeah. Um, and the, the 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 you know, I again, I got back involved again. But it was there was there was a moment at which I decided the Tories just aren't getting it. Mm. And that was when Theresa May invited Jeremy Corbyn into Number Ten Downing Street for cross-party talks. Yeah. And you know, I I, I was so disillusioned. Um, you know, she and everybody had said that he was unfit to leave, and yet she was giving him all the credibility yeah. of coming into Number Ten mm. Downing Street. And, and then uh, perversely, was, not really talking to him. I mean, it didn't, there wasn't much cross-party talking actually happening that's true i mean the, the whole thing was just it was it was just ridiculous yeah. and uh and you know I, i'm also a jewish uh, uh person as well so jewish uh, businessman as well and you know with all the anti-semitism that was coming out of labor i just thought this was absolutely mm. horrific that we're giving this guy credibility and so i, I sort of i you know there was an opportunity that came came along and i had a chat with uh, nigel farage and decided that uh, we have to do something about this and uh, i'm very glad that i did and yeah. uh, you know many others like me uh, you know made a very similar decision and we stood for the brexit party and that was a game changer for brexit oh it, you know, totally, it really was. Was. Yeah. totally was but then something changed again because the four of you decided to leave yes. the brexit party not all of you went to the tory party but you did so so why did you decide to leave at that point well um everything was going uh, rather well um the brexit party started to lose support when boris became prime minister right. because you know at the time when we we stood as uh um, for uh, for the European elections, that was in in May, and Theresa May was uh, prime minister at the time. Uh, so you had a Remain prime minister. Of course, when Boris was elected, you suddenly had somebody that you know believed passionately in in the cause. And you know, both Boris and Nigel Farage were both running different campaigns during the referendum. And I, I was on the Boris campaign rather than the right. Vote Leave campaign. But you know, I stuck with the Brexit Party. But it got to the point when Boris came back from Brussels with the deal. Um, Which nobody thought he would do. Nobody thought. Well, the public didn't think he would do it. I, I actually did think he would do it, and and he did do it. And um, I, I was interviewed uh, by the Times, and they called me and said, "What do I think?" And I had a, you know, they gave me an hour to to look at the deal and consider right. it. And I came, you know, I came back and I said, "Look." He's had his hands tied behind his back. He's been blindfolded. He's, you know, there was the Ben Act, which meant that we couldn't have no deal on the table, which was our strongest, uh, you know, bit of leverage. Uh, I said, I think he's done remarkably to get any sort of deal at all. You know, the backstop has been removed. And I think the deal, you know, whilst it's not a great deal, I think it's a good enough deal mm. for us to be able to move forward with Brexit. Now, little did I know, but at exactly the same time, literally within 10 seconds of the ink drying on that deal, Nigel Farage was uh, uh, being interviewed saying this is the second worst deal in history. <laughs> and, uh, Although, bizarrely, he now agrees with you that actually the deal is OK. Well, exactly. Um, you know, no, we all know it's not a great deal. You know, if, if Boris wasn't in that situation when he had to do the deal, 
I, I have no doubt that it would have been yeah. a better deal. I think if he'd done the deal first before Theresa May got her hands all over it, then that would have been a different story. A completely different story. But, you know, you are where you are. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to know that, you know... You know, you have to know when to buy and when to sell. Mm. And and for me, this was, a, you know, this was a moment at which we had to buy in because it gave us enough flexibility that negotiating the political declaration moving forward or not negotiating yes. and leaving... Also, we'd reached a point where we had to do something. We had exactly. to move somewhere. We couldn't continue with this hopeless kind of stalemate which was driving everybody crazy and actually did drive some people crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there was certainly... Uh, uh, you know, pe people were just getting fed up with the mm. whole thing, and you know, Boris got it right. You know, uh, when he talked about, you know, we've got to get this thing done. Uh, I think that that was a sentiment that yeah. a lot of people felt. And and now, you know, we've started a new year now, and you know, people know this thing's happening, and it's amazing. You know, you mentioned the IMF earlier. Yeah. It's amazing how people are suddenly starting to buy into it because we've made a yes, decision. Exactly. It's you know, you have and to make happening. decisions. And it's amazing how quickly all of the kind of the rancor has been taken out of the argument to a large extent. I mean, there's still Absolutely. a few, you know, hardline Remainers who will never, ever stop moaning. But, I mean, by and large, the, the country has become much more united. By and large, the people are resigned to the fact that it's happening on January 31st. And then we go on to the next stage. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. And And... You know, I think the argument moved on anyway. Mm. And w when I was campaigning to become an MEP, you know, it's amazing how so much of that campaign wasn't about Brexit anymore. It was actually more about democracy. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's really what changed. Um, and when we do celebrate on the 31st of January, I don't think we should be celebrating leaving the EU. I think we should be celebrating democracy. Yeah. Because, you know, when, when the, the Danes and the Irish and the Dutch all voted to leave, the EU made them vote again. Mm. And they did vote again. And they decided to stay put. Yeah. But we didn't. And, and, you know, it's all very well for people to say, you know, our country is humiliated across the world and the way this whole thing happens. But actually, I think we can be so proud of our democracy. Mm. You know, we didn't riot on the streets like they do in France every weekend. You know, we had this really... An incredible, um, you know, intellectual battle uh, fought in Parliament. The British public were incredible. That they are more educated now on the yeah. British Constitution than ever before, and I think they're so much more engaged in politics, which I think is a really great thing. So I think you know we should be celebrating democracy. Yes, I totally agree with you. We could do this all day, Lance, but we're out of time, I'm afraid. Oh the, my goodness! The producers are telling me that I have to kick you out of the room. <laughs> But, you know, uh, we'd love to have you back because there's a lot of things I wanted to talk to you about that we haven't even got to. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you for the, Boris, uh, for the Boris Enjoy. bagel. Uh, I shall eat that later. And uh, Lance Foreman, MEP, um, I guess one last quick question. I mean, you go back to the salmon business. Will you stay in politics? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm always sort of engaged uh, on the fringes. I, I think that it would be good for politicians to hear from small businesses more frequently because, as I say, they are the drivers of our economy. They are the ones that suffer when all the regulations come along. And if I can be of assistance in that regard, I'd be delighted to. OK. Lance Foreman, thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to Talk Radio, live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. It's a revolution, ladies and gentlemen, and you should join it because it's the only place to hear common sense at this particular time of the day. Uh, there's lots of common sense to be heard on Talk Radio at other times of the day. However, don't let me give you that impression. However, uh, right now we're going to go to the phones and hear some more common sense from you guys. 0344 499 1000. Lots of you uh, have sent me messages, though, on the YouTube feed. Here's Bridge, who says, unemployment figures, does this include the unemployed not entitled to JSA or universal credit because 
because their savings are over 16,000 and haven't made sufficient national insurance contributions? I can't answer that, Bridge, I'm afraid. Uh, I will attempt to find out, though, uh, because what I can tell you uh, is that people are very happy about the employment figures. The one thing I would say about the employment figures, which I'm not happy about, is the fact that uh, the, the statistics show that people are actually earning effectively less money than they were making uh, over 10 years ago, which can't be good, really, can it? Uh, Beachcomber talking about the car business that Lance Foreman mentioned. Uh, I'll be, um, it'll be a sort of self-levelling. If you need a car for work, you'll probably always own a car. If you need a car for occasional journeys for convenience, it would be cheaper just to dial one up. I'm not sure we're anywhere near that scenario yet, though. And uh, Felix says, Lance says we'll need fewer cars if they were self-driving. The problem is that assuming people will still need to get to work at the same time, those cars will all be needed at once and the rush hour and congestion will still exist. Well, it depends, really, doesn't it? I mean, how much of the rush hour is about people just driving to work and how much of the rush hour is about people driving because they drive for work? That's what I think might change over time as well. Let's go to the phones and talk to Dale in East Anglia who wants to talk about the EU's trade deals. Dale, a very good afternoon to you. Uh, Hello there, Mike. How are you doing? I'm I'm fine, thanks very much. If I sound a bit cold, I'm on a building site. Okay, not to worry. What do you want to What do you want to tell me? Um, well, two two points on uh, EU trade, Mike. Um, yeah. My my girlfriend's a Filipino, okay, and I I go to Southeast Asia quite regularly, right. and um, the EU is very very unpopular there. Is it? They um, yeah, oh yeah yeah they 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 Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, they really don't like the EU. Mm. Um, the, the, their main staple out there is rice. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, we're talking very poor farming people, rice. The EU deliberately suppresses the price it raised, pays rice to Southeast Asia. Right. So they can, you can take 2p off your rice in Tesco's. So they're deliberately suppressing the livelihood and millions and millions of people over there bullying them into it. And um, the, the second thing also... The EU several years ago persuaded thousands of farmers over there to plant palm oil because of the big demand for palm oil right. in the EU. All these farmers took loans from their government, okay, changed all their crops over to palm oil. Now, because of the ch- uh, change in policy, and um, like, like uh, saying palm oil is uh, a, b- a bit more toxic, bad for yes. the environment, they've now found around to those same farmers and they've said, well, actually, we don't want your palm oil anymore. You now need to grow this. Well, the palm oil, the palm plants damage the soil. It's going to take those farmers years mm. to get their soils back to what they were, and they still owe their government's money for changing. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Want. Well, you know, until I spoke to Alex Phillips yesterday, and you can find the interview on, on YouTube uh, from the Off Air series, right, I had no idea quite how much power they wielded in other continents, like you've just now told me about Southeast Asia. But in Africa, they do the same thing, apparently. I wouldn't, I seriously, I, um, I wouldn't be surprised. They're, yeah. um, they are deeply uh, unpopular. Uh, the, the, and the only comment I'd make about us is that Last I've travelled over there a fair bit, and we are probably the only country we we do get a few knocks here and there, but the, their 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 view on us is a lot more favourable than yes. the rest of the European. Union. I'm sure that's absolutely and, uh, true. That's fascinating, Dale. Great information. That thank you very much for sharing it with us. The point about the European Union, right, is that all you hear from the FBPE brigade and all the Remainers is that what a wonderful place it is to do business, how wonderful the trade deals are, how fantastic it is for us to be part of something uh, which is a whole rather than an individualistic nation, you know, which is somehow ashamed to be standing up for its own traditions. 
In fact, the EU appears to operate a bit like some kind of cartel going over to Africa, forcing people to sell certain things to them and not sell certain other things, telling them what price they're going to sell it at, telling them what they can't export and what they can export, basically taking all of their fish as best they can for sale inside the European Union, completely stopping um, African individual small fishermen from actually being able to do their jobs. And as we heard there from Dale completely and utterly basically raping Southeast Asia of its products and not paying the proper price for it. It's absolutely extraordinary. Let's talk to Malcolm, who's in Oxford. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? Good afternoon to you. I'm fine, thank you. Good man. Um, what what can you tell me? This morning, um, with regards to your uh, going to the hairdresser. Yes. And, well, I did the same sort of thing uh, Christmas Eve. I had a big beard that needed to come off. Right. And haircut and that. So this is just a word of warning to you. Mm. I went in there, yeah, took the beard off, the hot towels. Does that hurt? It's lovely. And then the, they, he said, do you want your eyebrows done? Yes, please. So he did that. Right. I said, would you like your, the hairs up your nostril? Yeah, I love that. Right. Now, this is where the warning comes in. Mm. I'm sat there. Right. He gets these two sticks, like <laughs> extended matches. Right. Right. He sticks them into this pot. Right. Of this black stuff. And then he... Hey. Really, he pulls... Lays me back slightly in the chair. Mm. And he gets one of these sticks and he mixes it round and it comes out with this big black blob on the end of it. Right. And he rams it up one of my nostrils and then presses the nostril. And then he went over and got the other one. Yeah. Did the same. Stuck it up my nostril. Did the same. Squeezed it. Mm. Lifted the chair back up. Right. I don't do my hair. And with no word, I hadn't got a clue what he was at, he then lent me back again, and all of a sudden he got one of these sticks and he just ran straight at my nose. Oi. Well, you know what it's like when you pull one air out? Well, now, it can be a bit painful. It was, it was so painful, but I couldn't say anything because there were other people in the... Uh, <laughs> well, in did the you not cry out? Laughing. Did you not, I, like, did you didn't punch him or anything in self-defence? No, Mike... My thought was, hang on a minute, that's only one. Yeah. I still got another one. Well, do you know what this guy did? This guy and that had to come out. Right. This guy didn't do that to me, but what he did do was he set something on fire, right, um, and waved it around my ears. That's what I thought he was going to do. That's and I, I could suddenly smell good. burning, and I thought to myself, this is not good. Well, you know, it's not what's known as a nose wax. Is it? Don't have it. I've never had Don't one of them. No. One other thing, Mike. Yes. The House of Lords. Yeah seem to be voting down parts of the withdrawal agreement. Well, they're voting down uh, the part about the Supreme Court, I noticed, but uh, yes, I haven't seen anything else. And two other things. Well, they can, do what, they can do whatever they like. It's not yeah. going to have any effect. But the thing is, if the House of Lords slows down the withdrawal agreement no, they can't. thing, if it's slowed down, we will be leaving on the 31st without anything. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no way that they're going to... In no way can they impact what Boris Johnson wants to do. No, definitely not. No. But it could make it even better. Exactly. I bet you could get some nose waxing done in the House of Lords without oh, any trouble at all. You can you imagine, what, that's a rich vein of uh, nose hair to, to, to plummet. Thank you very much indeed. Malcolm, only on this show do you go from nose waxing to the House of Lords. It's a simple and wonderful thing, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Vicky is in Brighton. Hello, Vicky. Well, hello, Mike. Good morning. How do you follow that, then? Well, I don't know, really. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to comment on my two favourite subjects not, namely the BBC and the EU. Yes. Because early this morning on News Bulletin, I I picked up the fact 
that the IMF has said that the UK is going to go faster than the EU and then picked off individual countries that we were going to do better than them. So I thought, ah, let me look on the BBC website. Where did it come in the pecking order? Not only is it not in the peck, it's not, it's nowhere. It's not there. Nothing. And I checked it again about 15 minutes ago. The other thing, of course, record new job figures. Yes. Nothing on the BBC website. That's incredible. Incredible. So anybody who says that the BBC isn't biased, they're stupid, frankly. Well, they quite... I also, <clears throat> I also speak as somebody who's been in the Question Time audience twice in the last 12 years. And all I can tell you is, Mike, if that is a reflection of the demographics by age and class and whatever of this country, joke. I know. It's not. I know. Well, thank goodness you don't have to listen to the BBC, Vicky, because you've got talk radio now where we talk a lot more sense and we tell you what the news actually is. And Vicky's absolutely right. We've got great employment figures and also the British economy will grow faster than its Eurozone rival, says the International Monetary Fund. We'll be back tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 